Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, $100 billion baby. Before I get to tonight's podcast, let me welcome onto the show none other than Bill Real. Bill, how are you doing? I am doing exceptional. I knew as soon as this thing came out, RFM, that at some point you and I would be sitting down and having a conversation. Yes, and apparently some people have even asked for this. So they're getting what they asked for. Right. So uh, so no complaining from here on out. <laughs> well, as you and I and pretty much everybody who's paying attention in the Mormon world and even outside the Mormon world know there was a huge bombshell that was dropped one week ago today. By the way, Today is December 23rd, 2019. It is a Monday, and I want to begin by wishing you a very merry Joseph Smith's birthday today, Bill. Look at that. It's uh, it's the birthday of the prophet, seer, and revelator, the man who uses uh, seer stones, inspiration, and other outside sources. Yes, and 214 years ago, he was born into the world, and even though apparently none of his treasure digging operations managed to find any gold, the church that he founded has managed to come up with a great deal of gold now. In fact, a hundred billion dollars. So, worth. so in fact, they actually so it, it all worked out right. Like there wasn't a Spanish silver mine where he said it was, but there were silver mines elsewhere. Yes, indeed. And so to start off with, it was one week ago today that the Washington Post issued a story that seems to have rocked the LDS world to one degree or another. And that story, in sum, is that the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, no less, has an investment portfolio which totals in value $100 billion. That's billion with a B, Bill. I'll, I'll tell you, too, just to add a little quick data point right here at the beginning, uh, and I will share, we'll, you know, we'll make sure there's a ton of links up in the show notes so that people can chase down uh, any quote that we're saying, any, uh, any data point that we're putting out there. But there is somebody on Facebook uh, who shared a website with me that goes into the Enzyme Peak, which is the name of this, uh, this entity that was an investment arm of the church that was investing all this money. And this particular website lists their value at $124 billion, just for the record. You know, I think you're right, Bill. If you look at the 74-page whistleblower complaint in detail, it does appear that the total amount estimated in this fund is $124 billion. Okay, well, right now we're dealing with $100 billion. It certainly may be more than that. But for purposes of this podcast, I want to be as conservative as possible. So we'll just round it down to the nice even figure of $100 billion. Now, I want to be as fair and accurate as possible. And so we have to start out with the fact that this number is based upon an allegation and an IRS complaint that was made by an individual named David Nielsen who apparently was one of the numerous managers of investments within this investment group, which is called the Enzyme Peak Advisors. And that is the official name for this investment portfolio, which has amassed approximately $100 billion. And now your sources say it's substantially more than that. As I say, we'll go ahead and go with $100 billion since that's a nice round figure and certainly easier to remember than $124 billion. What has happened is this. First off, I want to deal with how much $100 billion is. Because in these days with trillion dollar deficits, 
$100 billion doesn't sound like a lot. There was a cartoon which ended up making the point of how much $100 billion is. And it did it humorously and I think effectively. So you start off with the idea that $100 billion. Now, we know that there is a million dollars, right? And a million dollars is a lot of money. Well, a billion dollars is a thousand of those million dollars. A billion is $1,000 million. And here we're talking not about one billion, but we're talking about $100 billion. So here's what the cartoon says. If you start off by assuming that you, Bill, you make $10,000 every day, not a year, not a month, but you make $10,000 a day. It's an extraordinary amount of money. But if you made $10,000 a day every day, Bill, and you started today, then in 100 days, you would be a millionaire, okay? That'd be a lot of fun. That would be amazing to be a millionaire. So if you are continuing to make that $10,000 a day every day, in 100 days, you are a millionaire. Now, the amazing thing is how much longer it takes to become a billionaire. And that's what this cartoon shows, is that it takes 100 days to become a millionaire, but it takes 274 years to become a billionaire, still making that $10,000 a day. That's how much more a billion is than a million. I'm going to be really old and unable to spend it at that point. That, that's true. <laughs> and now if you want to get to $100 billion, which is the amount in this fund, now you have to go not just 274 years, but you have to go 27,400 years in order to get to $100 billion, making that same $10,000 a day. So that gives you a rough idea as to how much money we're talking about with $100 billion. Making $10,000 a day, every day, it takes you 27,400 years to get there. Wow. And the church has done it in 20 years. I think it should be said too, RFM, just to, just to note, I agree with you. We, we ought to say allegedly... Uh, at the beginning here, talking about this whistleblower who claims that the church has a hundred billion or more stockpiled up, but it also should be noted that this whistleblower brought lots of documents with him, and that he seems to have his T's crossed and his eyes dotted. Um, it, 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 at least on the surface, we ought to recognize that he's brought a lot of paperwork with him that substantiates this claim. Uh, and people, again, we can we can point the listeners to these videos of his brother communicating this, as well as the uh, links to these documents. But uh, it's not just a person uh, making a crazy claim. They also have quite a bit to substantiate it. Right. As has been noted, uh, a lot of people are surprised at how much it is, but nobody finds it unbelievable. No, not at all. And so if I could, I wanted to go first off to a little bit of personal background on my own part that led up to this revelation a week ago about the $100 billion trust fund that the LDS Church has. Uh, I do want to say before I get to that, though, that it must be understood that this is something separate and apart from many other investment arms and companies and corporations and funds that the LDS Church has. This is a super secret fund, at least it was until a week ago, that was very hush-hush and that very few people knew about. We'll get to that here in, in a few minutes as we talk about the historical development of this fund. But I have a friend 
who I've made in the last couple of months. He is an individual whose name I will not give, who is a Mormon and who has made his living in investing money. He has a private enterprise in which he conducts investments. So this is what he does for a living. So he's very, very well familiar with the types of things that go on in investments. And also, because he's a Mormon and because he's an investment, even though he's in private investments, he has nothing to do with the EPA, the Enzyme Peak Advisory Group. He does know two people who work for the Enzyme Peak Advisory Group. And he has conversations with them. And these conversations are also very off the record. But what I had found out leading up to a week ago, this revelation from personal conversations with this friend who once again shall remain nameless, is that these two people who work for Enzyme Peak have communicated to him their discomfort over the idea that the church has been amassing vast amounts of money. And I actually knew through this circuitous route, the amount was around $100 billion before the story broke a week ago in the Washington Post. And the reason that they were concerned about it is because there seems to be no plan for what to do with this money. It has grown to the point where it is $100 billion in this fund, and yet the only direction they are getting from their the people who direct the fund, and we'll get to who that is in a second too, but the only direction they're getting from their superiors, the people in charge, are to grow this puppy. That is their directive. Just grow it, grow it, grow it, and there seems to be no plan for dispersing any of this money. It is something that is simply held on to and it has grown for no seeming purpose other than to grow it as big as they possibly can. Yeah, it should be noted. I mean, you made a, a really important point that I want to just reiterate to here again. You stated this idea that this is only one uh, piece of the, of, of the church's investment puzzle. This is one particular entity. There are lots of entities. There are lots of cookie jars that the church has its hand in. Uh, this does not include the cattle ranches it owns. It does not include the property in Florida. It doesn't include some of the high-rise business buildings that the church has bought in the last decade. This doesn't include lots of things that the church has its, uh, its hand in. It does not include lots of the church's investments. This is one particular investment fund. And while I would have a guess that this is the largest arm of investments in the church, it is certainly not the sole one. Um, and then this idea too, that people are uncomfortable with this amount of money based on what I've heard RFM is that this fund in all of its 20 years of being stored away, it's only been messed with twice and it only been utilized twice. And that use was to bail out um, two business ventures, um, one of those being City Creek Mall, and I'm sure that's part of what we'll get into here later. But just to recognize, as you're saying, this money was not touched. It wasn't used. It isn't – this is a ton of money, and there seems to be no real plan for putting it into uh, charitable action. Exactly. And this is one of the things that was weighing heavily on the conscience of some members of this Enzyme Peak Advisory Group. And if we can just say EPA from here on out, it'll probably make things a little bit more clear as long as people don't confuse it with the Environmental Protection Agency. That's not what we're talking about. Two different dogs. Yes. So if I can now back up and give a historical perspective on the creation 
of this EPA. I think it will be helpful. I'm not sure I've heard anybody actually do this. I've listened to a lot of things. I've read a lot of things in preparation for this podcast tonight. But if we go back to the LDS Church and its history, we know that there have been times when the LDS Church has not been doing well financially. And one of the first of those times was in 1890 and thereabouts because the federal government was mad at the LDS Church out in Utah because it was practicing polygamy and it continued to practice polygamy in spite of the best efforts of the United States legislature to put the pressure on them to make them stop. So finally, the legislature passes the Edmunds-Tucker Act. And as part of that and other related acts, the church faced insolvency and a taking by the government of its assets if the LDS Church did not stop practicing polygamy. And of course, it was in that context that Wilfred Woodruff in 1890 gave the manifesto or what has come to be known now as the first manifesto saying, okay, okay, we give, we will stop practicing polygamy. Wilfred Woodruff came to the realization that he had a choice to make. Either he could continue to practice polygamy and face the financial ruin of the LDS Church or he could stop practicing polygamy, or at least make the announcement right that they were stopping practicing polygamy, and then try and keep the assets that the church had accumulated in its brief history as of that point in Utah. So there's one place where the church was facing and on the brink of financial ruin. And the next president, Lorenzo Snow, you've seen that um, the church movie, it's very old by now, but it was kind of new back when I was on my mission 40 years ago. It's called The Windows of Heaven that talks about Lorenzo Snow. Have you seen that one, Bill? Yeah, where he goes down to where my own little hometown here, St. George, Utah. And what does he do there? Do you remember? Uh, he was, uh, he went to give some kind of a conference talk or some type of a uh, a regional meeting of some sort, speaking to the saints here in St. George, Utah. They had been in a significant drought. If if the movie is accurate, they were. it was a significant drought. And he promised them that if they would pay their tithing, uh, that the Lord would open up the windows of heaven and that the uh, that the area would essentially receive its rainwater and things would get back moving again. Now, I want to just say that's a whole other episode on its own, but that video doesn't portray the actual circumstances accurately. But that is the, the movie's uh, reason and experience that they share from Lorenzo Snow going to St. George, Utah. And then the drought uh, seemingly quickly ended and rain came and the saints uh, once again enjoyed prosperity. Right, it has a very happy ending. My brothers and sisters, I understand clearly now wherein we as a people are failing to walk up to the covenants we have made. I realize that we are neglecting one of the most sacred laws the law of tithing. The time has now come for every Latter-day Saint who calls himself a saint to pay his tithing in full from this day forward. That is the word of the Lord to you, and it will be the word of the Lord to every settlement throughout Zion. This is the answer to our financial problems, even though as a church we are heavily in debt. I say unto you that if this people 
will pay a full and honest tithing. The shackles of indebtedness will be removed from us and we will yet become a prosperous people. So there's what Lorenzo Snow says in that movie, The Windows of Heaven, on the subject. And even in that quote, you can hear him reference to the debt that the church is under and why it is that the law of tithing was emphasized by him. And in fact, the law of tithing was successful in getting the church out of debt. And if we can sort of separate what's going on historically in the church from any miracles that may or may not have happened in response to it, which are very faith-promoting, what was going on is that Lorenzo Snow and his administration was pushing very hard the idea of the saints paying tithing, a full tithing, because they needed to accumulate some assets in order to make up for how badly off the church had become under the practice of polygamy. And apparently it was relatively successful and there may or may not have been miracles associated with it. But the church is now practicing tithing, full tithing, and getting a majority of its members to go along with that program. Now, Joseph F. Smith becomes president of the church after Lorenzo Snow. And there's some discussion about tithing when Joseph F. Smith is president. And actually, it was only a couple of years ago, and I think it was you, Bill, who found this quote by Joseph F. Smith, or at least you're the one who brought it to my attention, which I thought was quite remarkable regarding tithing and how long tithing would be practiced. Do you remember that quote? I don't have it in front of me, but I know the gist of it. The gist will do. The the gist of it was that the church will uh, become very profitable, essentially, and that at some point, tithing will no longer be required of the saints. There will come a time where the church has enough financial means, enough in reserve, that the law of tithing will come to a close and the saints will be tithed no more. Right. And it's a great idea because he's going from the idea that tithing is being used to pay for the basic expenditures of the church. And once we have the expenditures of the church covered because of tithing and investments from tithing, then we won't have to tithe the members of the church anymore, right? That's the way I remember it as well. Yeah, it comes to an end. So you've got Joseph F. Smith on record with that statement, which I think the current leaders of the church would probably be very happy if we all just forgot. When they produced the Joseph F. Smith manual about teachings of the presidents of the church, the one devoted to Joseph F. Smith, I think they managed to not include that particular statement by Joseph F. Smith. But the financial problems of the church were not at an end under the Joseph F. Smith administration because time went on and we get into the 1950s and the 1960s, especially in the 1960s, Bill, under the David O. McKay administration when the church was once again on the brink of financial insolvency. And that was when an individual in the church named, I think it was Henry B. Moyle, I might be getting the middle initial wrong because I think of Henry B. Eyring, but it's Moyle, M-O-Y-L-E, and he was a leader in the church. And his idea was to expend great amounts of money from the church in building chapels all over the world. So these ward buildings were being built all over the world, even though they didn't have necessarily the membership that would normally be required in order to build a ward building or a congregational center, or in other words, a church, if we're talking to people outside the church, to build a church. So they're building these by the hundreds. They're building churches everywhere in the world with the idea apparently that if we build them, they will come. So if we build the churches, then that will somehow manifest itself in greater converts 
who will then fill the church buildings that have already been built for their use. And by this means, the church ended up getting upside down or on the brink of upside down with its finances. Up to this point, the church had published regularly its financial statements. It published in its periodicals how much was being brought in, how much was being expended, and for what purposes. And it may not have been down to the last penny, but it was basically a financial sheet telling the members how much was being brought in in tithing and where it was going and for what purpose. And it was during this period that because the church was really getting on the brink of insolvency again, that the church decided we don't really want the members to know how bad off the church is. So we're going to stop publishing those regular financial statements so that the members of the church won't know how bad things are. And there, the age of secrecy inside the church's financials began. Exactly. Because what happened, at least according to my understanding, and I think I've read most of this in um, Gregory Prince's book, uh, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, where it talks about all of this, that what the church did was they made the very good move of bringing in somebody very smart in financial things. And that was in Eldon Tanner. And this is very interesting to me because all I knew about in Eldon Tanner was that he was a member of the first presidency when I joined the church back in 1978. But he was a really, really smart guy. I think he was from Canada. They brought him in and almost single-handedly over a period of years, of course, in Eldon Tanner reversed the financial situation of the church and got it back on a solid footing. And now, even though the church is doing better now, and even though the original reasons for not wanting the members to know about the financial situation of the church because it was bad is gone because now it's getting better, the church never opened up its books. It was never transparent again. It wasn't publishing those finances once again to the membership of the church. And as you say, that continues today. Yeah, tons of secrecy uh, from that point forward. And it works. It started off there when things were bad, wanting the, the members not to know how bad they were. And now we've kept the secret of just how, how prosperous and good and plenty things are right now. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is that the church is doing better. It's doing better. It's doing better. And now it's taking in enough tithing to cover its basic expenses and a little bit more. And a little bit more becomes a lot more. But basically, you understand that now they are able to pay for their expenses, but they have some that's left over. And now I'm doing a bit of speculating here, and I want to identify that as speculation. I think it makes obvious sense based upon what we know now, which is that sometime in 1997, that's the year that the Enzyme Peak Advisory Group was created by the church. It was decided that, well, we've got this excess amount of tithing coming in. What are we going to do with it? Well, the natural idea is, well, let's start investing this money and growing it. So it's not just sitting dormant out here like in a bank account. Um, even a bank account would make minimum interest. But let's see if we can do more with that money and create a greater reserve of money. And all of that makes absolute sense to me. Doesn't it to you, Bill? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there should be some level of saving uh, for a rainy day when you are a, uh, a religious institution. There's going to be good times and bad times. You know, I would expect any institution to put some money aside to save a little bit. Um, there becomes the question of, though, of what's reasonable and what's unreasonable and where is the best use for that money. And in this case, this story, I think, caught everybody off guard, both by the legality of the issue as well as the 
uh, enormous stockpile of funds. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think that if the church has just been publishing its financials on a yearly basis ever since 1997 or even before, it would have been much more gradual and it wouldn't have caught everybody so flat-footed. But it also appears the decision was made at that time that the amount of money that the church made in addition to tithing, well, actually, even the tithing itself, for crying out loud, the church doesn't say how much it makes in tithing. But this fund especially, this EPA fund, was now going to be super secret squirrel stuff. And this was going to be a very secret account. It's over here sort of on the side. It's certainly associated with the church. It's an arm of the church. Don't get me wrong. But it's going to be a fund that is going to be very secret and only a very limited number of people are going to be able to know how much is in this EPA account. And so what basically happens, and I've heard different numbers, but here's a number I've heard from another source of mine, which is that there are only seven people on the earth at any given time who know how much money is in this EPA account. And those are the three members of the first presidency, the three members of the presiding bishopric, and the president of EPA. Yeah, there seems to be a few people missing from that, doesn't there? I know, and all the apostles are missing from that, and that's the people that I would normally think of who would be in the know. But even though the apostles know, uh, I mean, they have their second anointing, they are in the know about all of that, they've received the highest ordinances of the LDS church, they are in the highest positions of leadership in the church, but what we're finding out now is that there's an exception to that leadership and the knowledge that goes along with it, and just because you are an apostle does not mean that you get to know what is in this EPA account. That is reserved to the members of the First Presidency and also to the members of the presiding bishopric and the president of the EPA account. Once again, there may be a couple of others who know about how much is in it, but even within this EPA account, there are, of course, many investors. They're they're professional investors, and frankly, it looks like they've done a very good job of investing. And of course, there's staff associated with these Uh, investors and these managers of the portfolios. But it is my understanding that within EPA, even all the different managers, they are broken up into different groups and they manage different groups or different parts of this entirety of the EPA. So they may know and certainly do know what it is that's going on with their individual parts of the EPA, but there are firewalls built up within the EPA within these different groups so that no manager who is within a certain group knows the entirety of what's going on. That's reserved for this very limited group of people to know. Yeah, and I I think there's an important point to make here, and and I don't know if you had maybe this in mind for talking about later, but I, I think this is crucial. Not only did you and I learn for the very first time about this particular investment arm and just how much money they accumulated, but the Quorum of the Twelve also just with the rest of us just learned that this investment arm has this much money we have uh, evidence and I'm, I'm sure you'll tell the story here later about president packer but we have the evidence that the quorum of the 12 knew the fund existed uh, they just didn't have access to the information from the fund and weren't permitted that information 
Um, and so they learned this week, just like the rest of us, how much money the church has stockpiled. And I think this has to bother them for two reasons. One is that I think there are members of the 12 who would, in their back of their head, go like, nah, man, I, I just don't think it's good to have that much money set aside and that we should be doing more good in the world. So that's the first one. And the second one is the hurt feelings on some level of finding out for the first time that this information was kept secret from you and finding out what it was and, and learning that you were on the outs and didn't have a right to it as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the leadership of the church. Um, I, I think that's got to kind of rub some of them the wrong way too right now. And so some of them are dealing with some hurt feelings here too. Well, you may be right. Of course, immediately to my mind jumps one exception to that rule of members of the Quorum of the Twelve who are finding out about it for the first time, right? And that would be Elder Uchtdorf, because he was in the first presidency. Right, he was. And so as he was in the first presidency, he would have had information and data that the 12 didn't have. And then he went back into the 12. That's true. And so uh, let's also talk about the non-disclosure agreements, which are signed by everybody who knows about this, all the different managers within the EPA, all the fund managers, uh, almost certainly, and that's my understanding from the complaint as well, have to sign these NDAs, these non-disclosure agreements. I would imagine that the people who are at the top, who know about the entirety of it, also have to sign non-disclosure agreements, though I'm not sure that that's the case. But there's obviously an understanding, at a minimum, that they are not to talk about the entirety of the amount in the EPA with anybody else. And that includes, of course, President Nelson, President Oaks, and President Eyring. And President Eyring is unique in this because he was a member of the presiding bishopric before he went over to become one of the apostles. So he knew about it from his days in the presiding bishopric originally. And this is also something that's very interesting to me because as a member of the church for 40 years, I have grown up with all the focus being on the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 apostles. These are the leaders of the church. These are the ones with the special witnesses of Jesus Christ. And these are the ones that we regularly hear from in general conference. Now, every now and again, in general conference, you will have a member of the presiding bishopric, either the presiding bishop himself or his two counselors, one of his two counselors speak in general conference, but they're basically, to my recollection, speaking about the regular stuff that everybody else is speaking about, the kind of stuff you've heard a million times, right? But my impression was always as a member of the church, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this, is that this presiding bishopric really isn't that important a group of people in the church, right? They're just sort of over here to the side and they don't do a whole lot but they're important in some vague sense, right? But not really as important as the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. Well, what I'm finding out now and what's being brought home to me by this revelation is that actually they are, financially speaking, more important. In fact, they are the most important people in the sense that they are the ones who are in charge of managing the finances of the church. That's what the presiding bishopric does. And the First Presidency is involved in the sense that they are the actual leaders of the church. So the first presidency is over the presiding bishopric as far as that goes. But as far as finances go, apparently the presiding bishopric is over the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Yeah, at least in some facets of information that they have access to, uh, they are on the inside while the Quorum of the Twelve is on the outside. Yeah, and that was fascinating to me. And now what I want to talk about is, since we've talked about the secrecy associated 
with this fund, as well as all the other finances of the church. It's not just this fund. All the finances of the church are secret, but this fund is super secret. Okay, that's my impression. And over the years, uh, different scholars and different uh, financial people who are interested in Mormonism have made attempts to figure out how much the LDS Church takes in a year in tithing, how much they have in reserve in their different funds. And they haven't been able to do this by looking at the books because those are completely closed within the United States. However, what I've seen is people look at the finances of the church in other countries where, by law, they have to be open, the finances have to be open, and looking at the income from tithing in those other countries, such as Canada was one example, and looking at the amount of tithing there and then trying to take that amount of tithing and extrapolate it to the United States and figure out from that, just as an extrapolation, how much the LDS Church in the United States is taking in and tithing. And they have done a pretty good job of making estimates, but it appears that all of their estimates, though very large, have been low. And that the actuality is the LDS Church is making more and has more in investments than they had predicted. Yeah, there's a whole lot of money there. And uh, it, it, to be honest, I'm, I'm somewhat amazed because you know, I don't think we've really talked about this whole bunch. We mentioned it earlier. But this fund has essentially existed for 20 years. And for them to have accumulated this much money in that amount of time... Um, it honestly blows my mind. Yes, but that's why it is that so many people are saying that, well, this is a huge amount of money. It's surprising, but it's not unbelievable, right? Nobody doubts it that it's $100 billion in this account because even though it's larger than people had estimated, it's not that much larger than they had estimated. So it's completely believable, and nobody's out there saying, no, this can't possibly be true. And in Including, fact, by the way, the LDS Church is not out there saying this is not true. That's exactly where I was going. Why don't you go with that for a second, Bill? Well, I just I, I, we can get into this later when we share the church's response, um, but I think everything they have done since this broke, uh, their rhetoric, the things they have put out, the Deseret News' uh, coverage of this, the church video, which we'll get into, where Elder Causé and a couple of other 70s uh, share a conversation, and maybe they're members of the bishopric. I don't, I don't know what specific callings the other two guys have, but there's three guys sitting in front of a camera. I think they're members of the presiding bishopric. And uh, the way that they talk, it becomes clear to me that they're not denying this on any level. So while we are saying allegedly, it feels pretty damn confident that the church has a hundred billion dollars or more stored away and that the church has no uh, motive whatsoever to deny this. Everything they've said has essentially been um, implicit or explicit acceptance of uh, this data. It's about building a reserve of the church and ultimately all of those funds will be used for church purposes. So uh, this is about preparing for the future. Uh, this is not this is not expenditures. This, these are investments. There's a difference between investment and expenditures. Investment is uh, not putting the money, not burying the, the, the money in the ground like in the parable of the talents, but uh, making sure that uh, it's not idle, that the, 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 the church will uh, uh, enjoy an increased uh, value of, of these reserves so they can be used for the sake of, of the purpose of the church. Sacred funds are managed with great care and responsibility and seriousness by the leaders of the church. We believe in inspiration and revelation. Uh, the presiding councils of the church are all in there, 
of course, we use uh, professional uh, people and uh, staff, and they have great talents and abilities and expertise. But at the end of the day, the decisions, the main decisions, are made by presiding councils according to the spirit of revelation. The real wealth of the church is not in its possessions. It's in the church members. It's in their faith. It's in their devotion to their Savior and to their Heavenly Father, their faithfulness at paying tithes and offerings. And we're so careful, so very, very careful to make certain that those funds are expended in a way that they would feel good about. And uh, I'm so grateful, terribly grateful for the faithful members of the church. One of the aspects of being wise stewards and of taking care of these sacred resources properly is to diversify. That, that, that phrase, not have all your eggs in one basket. And so we don't do that as a church either, and we wouldn't recommend that anyone else do that. They should be careful within their means, and, and little by little, they should have a financial store savings, reserves for a rainy day. And that's exactly what the church does. The church has a budget, again, from the faithful tithes and offerings of the members of the church, and every year is budgeted a portion to set aside for that rainy day that grows to be used, so that if hard times economically do come again, and they will, over time we know there are cycles, that we will have the resources necessary to continue doing this divine work. We won't have to stop missionary work. We won't have to stop temple work. We won't have to stop doing the things that we have been commissioned to do because of a lack of resources. That's why we care for them so carefully. Right. It's basically been a victory lap without going into details, like you say, either confirming or denying. But it's basically been a victory lap saying, yeah, we've been doing a great job. Yeah, exactly. They just essentially look. Nothing else should have been expected. We we are a church that uh, thrives and believes deeply in setting aside money for a rainy day, and we've done a hell of a job of it. And indeed they have. And at this point, I want to talk about three very positive things about uh, this news story, if I may, to try and give the benefit of the doubt and at least be fair to both sides. There are three positive things about this. The first positive thing is that the LDS Church has managed to invest very, very well. Okay, they've done an incredibly good job with this investment fund. Since it was started in 1997, 22 years ago, and apparently it was started with approximately $12 billion that was put into the fund. And then it was managed from that point up until the point where it now has $100 billion in it. And actually, the arguments from both sides of this issue tend to fall down into two main camps. The first camp is that the good news is the LDS Church has managed by investing tithing money to amass $100 billion dollars in this account, this EPA account. That's the good news. The bad news is that the LDS Church has managed to amass in this account $100 billion. So in other words, the same thing is seen either good or bad depending upon which side of the fence you are on. You can think it's either bad or good, but the fact remains, or at least the alleged fact remains, that the church has amassed $100 billion in this account from investment of tithing money. I should add to this that it also has been funded as well. So in other words, it didn't start with just $12 billion and then that $12 billion was invested to make it $100 billion, though that's largely the case. But apparently, approximately every year, an additional $1 billion has been added to that fund from tithing. 
So let me back up on that a second. Now, I don't expect this has been the case for the entire 22 years, because obviously income to the church through tithing has increased during that time period. But according to the allegation in the IRS complaint right now, the church takes in $7 billion a year in tithing. Okay, $7 billion with a B. $6 billion of that is then used to fund the necessary expenditures of the church, whether it's temples, whether it's BYU, uh, the three BYU schools, whether it's chapels, whether it's all the different things that the LDS church has to fund in its yearly operation expenses. That's $6 billion, but they've got a billion left over, right? So what do we do with the extra billion where we're going to put it into this EPA fund? So over the course of time, it has been funded with an extra billion dollars or so a year from its initial start of $12 billion. But during that time period, the investors there have done an incredibly good job of investing it to the point where it's now at $100 billion. So that's the first thing I want to say about it is that it's done a very good job of investing. Another good thing about it is that there is no indication, Bill. There is absolutely no indication that the leaders of the church are unjustly enriching themselves from the proceeds of this fund or anywhere else. They tend to live a relatively modest life. I know it was a surprise to some people a few years ago when we found out that the general authorities, the apostles, the first presidency, uh, I think also the members of the first quorum of the 70, make a base pay of about $120,000 a year base pay. But really, this isn't the kind of thing that we typically see with organizations that are caught with their hand in the cookie jar and are unjustly enriching their own personal selves at the expense of those who contribute to the company. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the trouble is, I think you're right. And I, and I think what you're saying is fair. The The downside, though, is that the church is still not transparent about its funds. And there are lots of secondhand statements or slightly kind of one layer off statements, uh, other kinds of evidence that point to the number of things that these men get as benefits, uh, including possibly free education, obviously free healthcare, free travel, um, a free car provided to them, and tons of other housing, uh, all of those kinds of things. I know that, for instance, Thomas S. Monson, when he passed away, had multiple properties. And he started off his career working for the Deseret News. And then he moves into uh, being a leader in the LDS church hierarchy. And by the time he's dead, he's got three or four homes all worth a significant amount of money. And one has to wonder how that happens, how that comes to be. And we're left guessing because the church still isn't transparent. It's only when whistleblowers like this come out do we get a glimpse on, uh, as Elder Uchtdorf would say, one piece of the elephant. Right. And on the other side of the fact that the leaders do not appear to be unjustly enriching themselves, you say there are statements that are like one-off, like Gordon B. Hinckley saying, no, they just get a modest stipend, which is what he's famous for saying. And then people find out the actual amount is like $120,000 a year base pay without all the additional perks like you mentioned, Bill, but $120,000 a year base pay. And then the question is, how does that line up with Gordon B. Hinckley's characterization of this as a modest stipend? 
which is what he had said to the church before we found out that this modest stipend was actually $120,000 a year. Well, if you've been managing a big company or been a CEO for your career or perhaps been a heart surgeon or an airline pilot, that may be a cut in pay. It's all relative, right? But when you look at $10,000 a month base pay, which is, of course, what $120,000 a year is, then if you're below that or even substantially below that, then that can look like a great deal more than a modest stipend. And I should add, and again, I don't want to get off track here because again, now I'm, I'm throwing out allegations, but we've all heard, at least most of us have heard in this, these circles, uh, Grant Palmer, before he passed away, he was the author of an insider's view of Mormonism. Um, he made the comment that he had had a close relationship with a member of the 70 uh, who no longer believed in the church, but was still serving. And that that person said, look, when you get into the 12, you, you get a million dollars to pay off all of your old debt. Um, and so there's that rumor that's, again, a second or third hand source, fourth hand source, perhaps. Then the other thing is I've got an inside source uh, in the church who tells me that the leadership, there's this giant escrow fund in the church that is essentially bottomless and that every leader of the church is essentially given a debit card and they're told, look, you can use this for whatever you want. Be reasonable. Don't don't do something stupid, uh, but use this whenever and however you want. Uh, and and essentially, you've got funds through this card to be able to access that. So again, here I am throwing out another allegation, but I'm simply pointing out: until the church is transparent, we are all left guessing what other financial benefits there are above and beyond this base uh, stipend that they get. Well, you're right, and I know that there's been some pushback on that allegation. Uh, by Grant Palmer about the $1 million for every uh, new apostle or this credit card. And I can't say whether it's true. What I can say is I'll echo you in saying, you know, if you're not transparent, then how do we know it's not true? Uh, But now we're sounding like an apologist, maybe for the Book of Mormon and arguing from a lack of evidence. All I can say is that those types of allegations suddenly sound a lot more believable than they did before. In other words, it would not be a big deal for the church to give a million dollars to every new apostle to pay off past debts or up to a million dollars, perhaps. I don't know exactly the structure of this rumor, but it becomes more believable. It should be noted, RFM, that every step along the way, we find information that the church didn't want to be out there. So every time we learn a secret that the leadership wanted to keep a secret, There comes a point where you cross the threshold of Occam's razor and you have to recognize there are certainly more secrets that haven't come out yet. And and when you recognize that this is a culture of secrecy, this is a culture of non-transparency, and that in the last decade, we could sit here and do an episode on how many new things have come to light that the LDS Church didn't want its membership to fully understand. It didn't want its membership to fully grapple with. And this is just the next one in line. And once you see that, oh my goodness, it's been a whole line of these kinds of things, then you have to realize there are still secrets that are being kept that so far have not come out. Right. And usually there's a reason people keep secrets, and it's because they don't want everybody to know what the secret is for one reason or another. You're right. So one more thing I want to say about the structure of this EPA fund before we go on. And the next thing I want to talk about is the secrecy and the steps that have been taken by the church that we understand from the whistleblower complaint, these steps to keep it secret, is the fact that this is 
built, this EPA fund is built on tithing. Now there's a lot of different arms of the church. There's the real estate arm of the church. There's uh, all sorts of different arms of the church and different corporations and different funds. And in fact, if you were to put it up on a wall and diagram it, it would probably look like somebody's basement, one of those movies where the police go down there and somebody's been doing some sort of horrible crime or something. And they've got all these different pictures and all these different notes and all these different pieces of yarn that are strung up there on different tax put into the wall. Uh, And it looks like a huge mess, right? Because it's so complicated. That's what I think the church basically has. It's very, very complex. But we've got this fund over here, the EPA fund, which I want to stay focused on, like I know you do, which is funded initially, my understanding is, from tithing. And then every year, another billion dollars of tithing gets moved over into this fund, which is then invested. So this fund is made up to my understanding, virtually entirely from tithing itself or interest that has been made on the investment of tithing. And I think that's very important to understand when we get to later parts of this conversation that this fund, this EPA account is funded exclusively or almost so from the tithing receipts from members of the church. Let's go to the most recent story that came out. It's not the the most recent story. This has only been a week. There have been a lot of stories coming out, but there was a story that came out in the news that was devoted to three examples from this whistleblower complaint as to the steps that have been taken by the church to keep the existence of this fund and the contents of this fund and the, the largeness of this fund secret and restricted only to those seven or so individuals who are allowed to know what's in the fund. And that's where we get to the story about Boyd K. Packer. Do you want to talk about that, Bill? So the title of the article from the Tribune is Excerpts Show How the LDS Church Tried to Keep Its Lid on a $100 billion Account, Even Freezing Out Apostle Boyd K. Packer. It says, Boyd K. Packer, when he was next in line to succeed then-church president Thomas S. Monson, he came to EB, uh, EPA president Roger Clark, wanting to know how much Enzyme Peak had amassed in the details of its structure. Mr. Clark told Mr. Packer that he could not share such details. Quote, Mr. Packer said, I think I should know. I'm the most senior apostle and president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and I'm a breath away from being the next prophet. I think I should be prepared, unquote. Quote, Mr. Clark reaffirmed that he had been instructed not to reveal that information to Mr. Packer, who went away perturbed and unsatisfied as related to the whistleblower uh, by Richard B. Wiles, or Willies, uh, the head of fixed income at EPA at the time. Mr. Packer died before he could join the first presidency and know the value of the EPA, uh, unquote. So that's our story. Right. And so that's one of the three examples that even the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the person next in line to be the president of the church, was shut out from information regarding the amount in the EPA. And the person they're talking to is the president of the EPA, right? That was that George Clark individual. He's not a member of the first presidency, obviously. He's not a member of the presiding bishopric. He is the president of the EPA. So here you have a person who, as far as I know, is not even a general authority, but he's actually kind of a secret super general authority, telling Boyd K. Packer, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, that's on a need-to-know basis, Boyd, and you don't need to know. Yeah, and there's one other little cool detail in this article I want to say, just so that 
I don't forget to come back to it later. Um, this is unrelated to the Packers story, but just another comment in this article that I think uh, hits on as we move forward the legality of whether this was appropriate for the church to to, to store this much money away. And the quote is this: It says this was unacceptable to the LDS church because the church did not want anyone at uh, Deloitte, and I don't know what that is, to discover the true size of EPA. I think this was another another agency that was needing the information from a legal standpoint, and the church refused to share it. Uh, it says, so the church leaned on Mark Stevens, a Mormon and an audit director at Deloitte, to vouch for the audit without letting any auditors, which he did for multiple years. Uh, in other words, one entity has a legal right uh, to get information from the church about its finances. So a, a person who works with that entity then reaches out to the church. Luckily, that entity had a, a faithful Mormon in, uh, in its ranks. And so the church then uses that person as a middleman for them to say like, yep, I've seen all the numbers, everything looks good. In reality, that person was clueless to how much money was in the account, and nobody from this Deloitte entity ever really got their hands on the numbers. And it finishes with this comment. It says, it did not represent the industry's best practices for obvious reasons. Again, not necessarily illegal, but there's this uh, aura of not doing things on the up and up, not doing things in an ethical way. And because, because the church continually wanted to avoid sharing the numbers of its EPA account with anybody on the outside. Right. And so uh, the article leads off with the Boyd K. Packer story. It's the first of three examples of steps the church took to keep the contents of this account secret. And it leads off with the Boyd K. Packer account, I think, first off, because there's name recognition, also because it's easy to understand. The other two examples are not so easy to understand. So I went back to that story this morning and really read those closely. And I think I have a better understanding of what they're talking about. And what it had to do with was BYU itself. And BYU, I was astonished to find from the story, actually receives federal funding. Did you know that, Bill? I thought there was a huge deal about BYU not receiving any federal funding. And that's why it was a private school. And that's why they could do whatever it was they wanted on their campus. At least that's what I grew up hearing. Did you ever hear things like that? I did not, but man, to receive federal funding while you have a hundred billion dollars stockpiled seems like an odd little thing too, doesn't it? Well, right. And so at some point, at some point, and this apparently was a number of years ago, but still while the EPA existed, it doesn't say exactly when in the article, but because BYU is receiving federal funding, that meant that an independent auditing company was able to look at the assets of the church in making its audit, its determination, whatever it was that they were trying to figure out regarding the funding it's getting from the federal government to BYU, right? Okay, so that much is clear, correct? Yeah, that much is clear. Okay, so it's this independent auditing company that is talked about, that Deloitte company that's mentioned there. And as part of their audit, they want to know, what do you got in the EPA? And that's where the church apparently gets a little bit hinky about it and says, well, we don't want you to know what's in the EPA. So we happen to have a faithful Latter-day Saint who is a member of this independent auditing company. And so they have this Latter-day Saint who is in the independent auditing company. He is able to get the auditing company to simply accept this Latter-day Saint's voucher saying, 
everything in the EPA is on the up and up and everything's fine without revealing the amount that's in the EPA. And for whatever reason, obviously this Latter-day Saint over at the independent auditing company had some seniority because the auditing company took his word as gold, said, okay, everything's on the up and up. We'll go with that and we won't have to look at what's in the EPA itself. So the church, by doing this and by using and leveraging the existence of a member of the church in the independent auditing company, was able to keep the independent auditing company from moving forward with what would be the normal practice of actually finding out what's going on with the EPA. And it kind of diminishes the whole point in having an audit if you're just going to take somebody's word for it. Exactly. And so that went on for a few years, but apparently from this article, and once again, this article doesn't get into a lot of the details, and I don't know that I am qualified to talk about a lot of the details anyway. And if we get too much in the weeds, we might lose a lot of members of the audience who are listening to this podcast. But apparently the, the church saw this as a weak point in the EPA. In other words, we want to build a wall of secrecy around the EPA. This is a weak point in it, so we're going to restructure things in such a way that we're not going to have this weak point anymore. And so even though the independent auditor, after a few years, says, well, we can't just accept your word for it, that necessity of finding out what was in the EPA was done away with. So they protected everything, and the existence of the amount that was in the EPA was safeguarded in spite of the independent auditing company. Yeah, and I I think everybody began to be uncomfortable with some of these arrangements too. It mentions this entity Deloitte um, essentially became uncomfortable with this just accepting somebody's word for it. And so parts of this started to fall apart and the church obviously adapted. Right, and so what we're talking about here is not just keeping Boyd K. Packer in the dark about what's in the EPA. We're talking about independent auditing companies who have a right to do an audit and the steps the church took to keep it secret from them as well. And the third story has to do with, well, it has to do with the Patriot Act. And let me just talk about this briefly because this is the third story that mentions the steps that the church took to prevent anybody from knowing what was in the EPA. And this has to do with the Patriot Act. It's passed in 2001. And basically what it says is this, if you are a company And of course, companies are up and running. They want to be profitable. A lot of them, thank goodness, are profitable. They turn a profit. But the idea is this. In order to start a company frequently, you have to get money from another source. You have to be funded by another source. And backing up a second, this is one of the things that the EPA does, is it invests. It has a wide diversity of investments in the portfolio. And some of that has to do with funding new companies as well as already existing companies, with the idea that hopefully this company will uh, make it, it'll get traction, it'll expand, it'll make money, and then it will repay the loan from the EPA with whatever interest is supposed to be paid back to the EPA. That's what makes it an investment, right? You invest money and you hope that the investment will do well, and then the company you've invested it in will then be able to pay it back. Okay, now having said that, if you're if you're the company who's receiving the investment, right, that you are now paying back to the investor, in this case, the EPA. But of course, there's lots of people who do this kind of investment. The EPA is not the only one. Having said all of that, my understanding from the story is that under the Patriot Act, if you are this company and you are receiving money that's invested in you, and now you're paying it back with interest, there is a possibility that the person who's funding you could be associated with terrorists or terrorism. And therefore, a United States company 
has to be careful and take certain steps to make sure that the money they're paying back to the investor is not going to a terrorist group or a terrorist organization. Does that part make sense? Yeah. yeah. And so therefore, the companies are supposed to get certain documentation from the investor that shows what it is that they have, where they're getting their money from. This would be the EPA in this example, right? That the businesses being funded by the EPA are supposed to get information from the EPA. Where's the EPA getting their money from? And where's the EPA spending their money to make sure that it's not from terrorist groups that they're getting the money or spending it on terrorist group or terror activities. Now, once again, we're not saying that the EPA is being used to fund terrorist activities. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this, is that the EPA refused to comply with that on the part of the businesses who requested that information from the EPA. They simply said, look, everything's fine. They kind of did what they used to do in general conference until recently, which is basically say, look, it's been audited. There's no terrorist activities going on. Do you want the money or don't you? And that puts the business in the position of saying, well, do we want the money or don't we? And of course they want the money. That's the whole thing, right? So they want the money. So uh, a number of businesses would sort of truncate that requirement or let it go or just rely upon the EPA statement that everything's good, we don't have anything to do with terrorism, and they would go ahead with the loan and uh, things would proceed as normal. All I'm saying here is that this is a third step that the church took in order to prevent the outside world from knowing how much the EPA had in it and where it was coming from and where it was going was that they refused to comply with the requests from businesses that they were financing to give them that information, which the businesses that they were financing were supposed to get from the EPA pursuant to the Patriot Act. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That there are these three instances uh, that show ways in which the church went above and beyond to make sure that its own ranks, all the way up to the Quorum of the Twelve, didn't know, as well as to keep it out of the hands of uh, entities that actually had a legal right to have access to those numbers uh, to go through these processes. Right. And so the image that I'm getting of this EPA account is that it is shrouded in secrecy. Substantial steps are taken in order to keep anybody other than the seven or so people who are allowed to know what's in it. And they are, of course, all very much church-related people uh, in the presiding bishopric and the first presidency and the president of the EPA. They are the only ones who are allowed to know the totality of what's in the EPA. And by the way, everybody who works in the EPA, as far as the, the managers of the different accounts, they all have to be faithful LDS people as well. So even though this is professionalized and these are people who do this professionally, they are also required to be faithful, active, believing Latter-day Saints. So I should add here that this is another way that the LDS Church has been able to amass such a great amount of money over such a relatively short period of time is that they are also able to cut the costs for the salaries they pay their professional investors. They may pay them around $100,000 or $120,000 a year, which is quite a chunk of change, except when you compare it with what other investors are making in other similar types of investment accounts, which is much, much more than what the LDS Church is paying to its LDS investors to do this for the LDS Church. So the LDS Church is able to substantially reduce its overhead costs in operating this EPA account by paying the professional investors who are faithful LDS members pennies on the dollar of what they would have to otherwise pay professional investors to do the same type of work. 
you know, a couple, maybe a couple interesting things to add in here is just some context of other things that have happened over the time period of the last, uh, let's say, 30 years, because this fund started 20 years ago. But if we back up, I think this fund was started in 1997. And right around this same time, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, when he was president of the church, uh, and I don't remember where this was said, but it was some type of, uh, I believe, general conference. But it was a talk on tithing. Uh, President Hinckley said something along the lines of, if the members of the church stop paying tithing today, that the programs of the church would uh, begin to shut down and be unfunded within a very short while. The fact, of course, is that we do have tremendous assets when the value of all church buildings and facilities is included. But these assets are not income-producing. They are consumers of income. They consist of thousands of meeting houses across the world, many temples, seminaries, and institutes, and, of course, Brigham Young University. They have cost millions, and they produce scarcely anything in the way of a direct dollar return on that investment. There is only one reason for their existence, and that is to serve the needs of people as sons and daughters of God who have a peculiar and important relationship with Him. I repeat that the Church is frequently spoken of as an institution of great wealth. When all is said and done, the Church is wealthy only in the faith of its people. One of the expressions of that faith is the payment of tithing. The Church is spoken of as an institution with great business interests. The income from those business properties would keep the Church going only for a very short time. And, and so again, recognizing, look, this quote came before all of these funds had been accumulated. But to recognize that 20 years ago, just about the same time this fund has started, uh, President Gordon B. Hinckley indicates that the Church is essentially operating almost kind of day-to-day with income and, and then expenses. Um, so to note that. Other things that seem to kind of creep up. So the cool thing about the Internet is we've got this thing called the Wayback Machine. And so we're able to essentially look at things that used to exist that the church or any other entity for that matter, they remove it off their website, they change their wording, and we now have the ability to go back and find those things, which is pretty cool. Uh, What we have is an article from the 9th of December, 2018. This is a article by the Mormon Newsroom. This is an official arm of the church's social media. So this is a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints official uh, space to be in. It's the Mormon newsroom. At least that's what it used to be called. And on 9 December 2018, it says Elder Anderson meets with Zimbabwe's Vice President Mohadi and pledges support. And so essentially, uh, he goes to visit Zimbabwe They are financially uh, in much worse shape 
than, than the United States. And it says, Elder Anderson discussed with Vice President Mohadi plans to assist with development, education, improvement of health services, and strengthening of families. He pledged support and love for the people of Zimbabwe, noting that Southern African country was now home of more than 30,000 members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, but the money quote is, again, he's there to see if they can help in any way. And here's the quote. It says, quote, we want to help in every way we can, unquote, says Elder Anderson. Quote, we are not a wealthy people, but we are a good people and we share what we have, unquote. So it should be noted, and there's this has been pointed out, like here's Elder Anderson saying we are not a wealthy people, but we'll do what we can. But we ought to give Elder Anderson a break because he is in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and almost certainly had no idea of the size of this fund. And and hence, he is saying a false statement, but he's saying it out of ignorance. At least that's what I think we should grant him. Now, I want to note that said, this uh, Elder Anderson quote was on the Mormon newsroom. It sat there until the whistleblower released uh, the data that this is an extremely wealthy church. So while Elder Anderson might be able to plead ignorance, the entity of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints knowingly put Elder Anderson's comments up on the Mormon newsroom regarding the church not being a wealthy people and allowed it to sit there so long as the membership was ignorant that Elder Anderson's statement was false. So long as the members didn't know this hundred billion existed, the church as an entity was completely comfortable with Elder Anderson's quote being officially published on the church's website for all the members to see and read. Soon as the whistleblower's report comes out, the church immediately removes Elder Anderson's comments because now everybody knows that that statement is BS. Right. And a few comments that come to my mind while you were talking about these things, Bill, is you hit upon the third thing. Originally, I had said that there were three positive things to say about this account. Number one was the fact that they've done a really good job of investing. Number two is the fact that the general authorities do not appear to be enriching themselves unjustly from the, uh, the funds from this account or any other account for that matter. And the third thing is what you just hit on, is that this is a recent development. Uh, it's been 22 years, but obviously it wasn't that big 22 years ago. It's grown to the point where it's $100 billion now. It's a recent development, and I think that plays into how we have to look at statements such as the one you mentioned by Gordon B. Hinckley, which I think was before the account was even created, and to the point where we can't fairly look at what he said then in terms of what exists now. It's certainly possible that what he said at the time was true, that if tithing stopped, that the church would end up you know, grinding to a halt. Now it's different than that with $100 billion 22 years later or so, $100 billion currently in this EPA account. So that's one thing. 
And before we leave this issue of the President Hinckley quote, I went back and I did some research on this issue and I found out that it was back in 1985 in the Enzyme magazine in an article titled Questions and Answers. It was November of 1985 if you want to look it up. That President Hinckley stated quote, the combined income from all of these business interests is relatively small and would not keep the work going for longer than a very brief period. End of quote. Now, that may have been true and probably was true back in 1985 when President Hinckley originally made that statement. The problem is, the problem is that the presiding bishop of the church last year in 2018 repeated that 1985 quote from President Hinckley in present tense. In other words, the presiding bishop of the church, Elder Cause, and this can be found on the church website as well, in the Mormon newsroom under the article Church Finances and a Growing Global Faith. This is from 22nd May 2018 Salt Lake City news release. And there, Bishop Cause, who knows full well that the church is now self-supporting and does not need tithing in order to continue to meet its operating expenses, states this, President Hinckley observed that the combined income from all of these business interests is relatively small and would not keep the work going for longer than a very brief period. End of quote. So essentially what Bishop Cause does is he takes a quote from President Hinckley from 1985 when it was probably true and requotes it in 2018 when Bishop Cause knows it is no longer true, that indeed the church makes more in tithing than it needs to support itself and yet wants to give the impression that that is not the case. So this appears to be another step that the church is willing to take in order to protect knowledge of the contents of the EPA account from other people, including its own members. It will actively mislead its own members to make them believe that the church depends upon tithing for its operating expenses, even in the short term, and not to let them know that they have more than enough to meet their needs and then some. And certainly not to let them know that they have $100 billion sitting in an investment account. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk about in that regard. The second thing has to do with the structure of this. And I want to hit on this too, because this will be important moving forward, which is that the church makes $7 billion a year in tithing, $6 billion of which goes to operating expenses. We've mentioned the $1 billion then gets shoved over into the EPA account for further investment. Having said all of that, the EPA account, with its investment practices, which are very good, has yielded an average of approximately 7% per year on its investments over the course of the 22 years, which means that with $100 billion in the account now, 7% of $100 billion is $7 billion, which means the church has gotten itself into the enviable position of from this one account and the interest being made on this one account is more than able now to fund all of the expenditures that the church has, the six billion expenditures that the church has every year. So actually, the church can get along now without any tithing from the membership of the church. The tithing being $7 billion a year, the church needs $6 billion of it, and now they've managed to create this EPA account, which yields approximately $7 billion a year. So that's the second thing. Now, the third thing is this. The third thing is this, is that over course of time and as part of this plan of keeping this account secret, the church has to limit funds that are coming into this account and funds that are going out of this account. Because as soon as they start spending things on other things out of the account or bringing funds from sources other than tithing, over which the church has absolute control, into this account, now they start opening breaches into the account 
information breaches by means of which people can begin to get access to the account and find out how much is in it. I think that independent accounting agency was one example of it that was almost able to do an accounting and find out how much was in the account. We talked about how the church took care of that to close that gap. But so this has to be discreetly held separate and apart from other expenditures, other importings of funds into the account in order to keep it secret and keep it safe. At least that's my understanding of it. Now, did you have anything that else that you wanted to add to that before we got to what I think is the next natural thing to talk about, which is that there appear to have been only two expenditures from this account over its 22 years of existence, Bill? Yeah, I've got uh, two things. One is that, uh, and I apologize if there's any background noise, I'm at work recording this and uh, the landscape company is outside working on our our uh, our land space. So um, if you hear a blower, sorry about that. But I will say two things. One is that I remember going through school as a young kid and learning about compounded interest. And the way it was taught back then, and today, unfortunately, savings accounts only pay like point something percent, or maybe if you're lucky, you get 1% interest. When I was a kid, savings accounts at banks paid like 3 or 4% interest. And so we were taught like you could gain uh, an increased financial standing as an adult if you constantly left your money in the bank and put more money in, and then the bank would pay you interest, and on top of that interest, now that money's invested, and now you get even more money. Well, the church, in a way, is kind of taking advantage of this, but through the method called the stock market or through uh, certain kinds of funds and bonds uh, that are out there and available that the church is invested in through this EPA account. The church gets $7 billion a year now. It, 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 based on this whistleblower's report, the church has $100 billion in the account. They're going to add another billion from their leftover funds after expenditures. And this fund is going to self-perpetuate another $7 billion. So it should increase by $8 billion if my math is right, seven plus one. Now that $8 billion for next year is also a factor for the investment. So, so long as the stock market does reasonably okay, long as we don't have a crash, long as nothing super detrimental occurs, that $8 billion is now going to earn another 7% as well. And so what we learn happens is that if, if the church goes another 10 years with the stock market having financial uh, stability, the church isn't just going to add another uh, $49 billion, by the way, which will now in 10 more years bring it to $150. It almost assuredly will be over $200 billion by the time you add in compounded uh, interest from uh, the amounts they're getting on top of their investment, on top of their profit on these investments going back in and being reinvested. And so by the time we get another decade in, we're going to go to $200 billion. Now, if we go another decade out, at that point, it's not going to be $300 billion. We're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of three fifty dollars or $400 billion. This thing is increasing by an exponential standard. Um, so that should be noted. The other thing that, that I wanted to note here before we moved on is when I was an active believing member of the church, I remember when the church changed its policy. The church used to have, and I know this is a small point, but I have to imagine there are a lot of Orthodox members out there who got poked a little bit when they heard about the church having all of this money. And, and for me, the main example to show this is when the church uh, 
let go all of its uh, building uh, janitors. So the church used to have a system whereby in every stake there was a hired individual who would work full time going from ward to ward to ward, cleaning the buildings up. And at some point, the church imposed on all of us as believing members that it was uh, needing to cut back or to figure out ways to be more uh, financially solid. And so it let all of these janitors go. And it started this every member, you know, every member takes their turn cleaning the ward buildings. And so I remember every, we were in a small ward, about, a, about 115 uh, active members. And so about once every six weeks or so, every two months, uh, our family would go to the church and would spend a Saturday evening cleaning the church up so that it would be nice and clean for services the next day. And we felt good about it. We were doing our part. We were helping the church save money, and we were showing our love and appreciation for the gospel and the kingdom, and we were taking care of these ward buildings. But, but it was with the understanding that the church needed to cut back on some level. Now hearing just how much money the church has today, and again, this isn't 20 years ago when they didn't have it. Today, if I was a member of the ward cleaning the ward building under the understanding that I was helping the church save money, knowing like I'm sacrificing how much time I sacrifice, not just cleaning the building, but all the other things I do inside Mormonism. Um, I serve in my calling. I go do my home or visiting teaching, I, which is now the ministering uh, uh, label. Uh, I would uh, prepare for lessons. I would do this. I would do that. I would help people move, go here, go there. And then to find out that I'm just, I'm spending this much more time not not doing what I want to do with me or my family, but doing this, this service thing inside cleaning the building and knowing the church now has the money that has no issue funding those janitors, uh, it would be a little uncomfortable for me. And so I've got to wonder what some of the members are thinking today as they thought their church was uh, needed some extra financial stability when in reality, this entity has more money than most uh, corporate empires. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to get to a couple more points like that when we're wrapping up the podcast, but I think that's an excellent point. I think there are a number of members who are at least asking that question, perhaps in the front of their mind, perhaps in the back of their mind. And I think the church leadership recognizes that some members are going to have a problem with this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so quick to issue public statements dealing with this issue and in response to this revelation of the existence of the EPA account and how much, in fact, is in it. Yeah, and, and I think there are lots of tangents, even as we've gone through so far and covered a bunch, and now we've got another hour or so here of things to cover. Um, I've got to imagine there are unseen tangents of this as well, and, and I'm curious what the church will do going forward that it wouldn't have done had this secret not come out. I guess we just have to play the wait and see game. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if I can talk about now these two expenditures that have gone out of this account over the past 22 years out of the EPA account, according to the whistleblower's complaint to the IRS. And by the way, let me back up here a second and try and make this clear. If it's not clear to the listeners already, an IRS complaint was made by David Nielsen 
the guy who used to work at EPA, and he worked there, I think, since 2010. So for nine years, he's been working at the EPA. He's been an investment manager of some sort or other with them. And he finally got fed up with what was going on. It struck him as wrong. It struck him as potentially illegal. And so he collected some documents before he left there earlier this year. In September, I think it was. In September this year, he left and he filed a whistleblower complaint with the IRS, which was complete with documents so that the IRS could see exactly what it was he was talking about and why he thought this was potentially a violation of the United States tax code. Then his brother, apparently his twin brother, Lars Nielsen, was not content to wait for this whole IRS complaint and investigation to play out, which is going to take apparently a number of years maybe up to seven years for this to play out. And Lars Nielsen, the brother of David Nielsen, wanted to go public with this information. And therefore, he leaked this information to the Washington Post, which then published it in a story a week ago today. So hopefully that much is clear about the background of the IRS complaint and the leaking of it, which was not done by David Nielsen. In fact, it's being presented as David Nielsen is not happy with his brother Lars about having leaked this information. And yet it is out there now and the church is dealing with it. And we are attempting to analyze it here on this program. But as part of that complaint, there have been no charitable expenditures from this account over its entire 22 year life. There have been two expenditures. And by the way, let me talk first off about this IRS complaint. The first complaint is this, is that this EPA account has managed to amass this much money, largely because none of the money that it has made in its investments is taxed. It is set up, it's an arm of the church. The church is obviously a nonprofit organization. It's a church, right? So therefore, under the U.S. tax code, it is not taxed. And the EPA, the Enzyme Peak Advisors Group, is an arm of the church, and it is also set up under this umbrella of not being a taxable institution. It is part of the church. It is categorized as a nonprofit, which means that the amount of money that it earns is supposed to be used by its charter for religious or charitable or educational purposes. Well, it has sat there for 22 years. None of what it has amassed over those 22 years has ever, according to the complaint, been used for any of those purposes, either religious or charitable or educational. So that's the first problem that the IRS complaint raises and whether this is a violation of the IRS code, the U.S. tax code. That's number one. Okay. And the second thing is that there have been apparently only two disbursements from this account and they have totaled approximately $2 billion between the two of them. And both of these disbursements that are documented as well as alleged in the IRS complaint are not for charitable purposes, but they have been used for for-profit organizations that are associated with the church. So the church has a bunch of non-profit organizations. It also has a bunch of for-profit organizations. And the for-profit organizations are subject to the tax code and they have to pay whatever taxes that they get on their income as provided in the tax code. Now, one of those for-profit arms of the church is the Beneficial Life Insurance Company which the church runs and has run for a number of years. And in fact, President Thomas Monson, probably before his president, but still while he was an apostle, was on the board of directors and even did promotional videos for 
the um, or at least commercials for the beneficial life company, encouraging people, especially members of the church, to get their life insurance from beneficial life insurance. And I think you've probably seen those videos, Bill. But it, it turns out that when the economy took a nosedive back in 2008, a number of businesses were hurting across the United States. And one of those was beneficial life insurance. And what it appears from the complaint is that at that point, the church took $600 million from the EPA account and then pushed it over to Beneficial Life Insurance, a for-profit agency of the church, in order to keep it from going insolvent. So there's a $600 million push out of the account into a for-profit arm of the church. So that's one of the two disbursements. The problem there, of course, being that you're taking money from a nonprofit fund and then dispersing it not to charitable, educational, or religious purposes, but to a for-profit arm of the church. And that may be its own independent violation of the tax code. The second one, which I think may be more problematic for a reason we'll get to here in a second, is that $1.4 billion dollars according to the complaint and according to the documentation supplied with the complaint, was used by the church in order to partially fund the City Creek Mall. Now, the City Creek Mall is, of course, something that the church is heavily involved with. I think all the listeners know what the City Creek Mall is. It's something that was started back around 2006. And, of course, there was a big ribbon-cutting uh, ceremony in 2012 when it opened for business. And I think most people remember the members of the first presidency being there with other uh, city officials and cutting the big ribbon and saying, one, two, three, let's go shopping. But back in 2006, it was announced that the church was going to be involved in financing or at least partially financing this huge, beautiful mall in downtown Salt Lake City. And it wasn't just the mall, though I think the mall was the centerpiece of the refurbishing and the revitalizing of downtown Salt Lake City. But it appears that $1.4 billion was taken from the EPA account to help fund the City Creek Mall. And you know, Bill, this morning, I thought, well, wait a second. If it's $1.4 billion that's going to uh, finance the City Creek Mall from this account, and once again, this suffers from the same problem that the beneficial life insurance disbursement did, which is the City Creek Mall is a for-profit venture of the LDS Church. So once again, we've got the same problem of money being taken from a nonprofit fund under the LDS Church and then being given or donated to a for-profit arm of the church. That's, that's a problem right there. The other problem that makes this more serious, and actually before I get to that point, let me get to another point. It does get kind of complicated, doesn't it, Bill? But one of the other points here that's a problem is, is that the EPA fund largely, I mean, it's an investment arm of the church. It buys stocks and bonds. It finances businesses like I talked about earlier, right? Startup companies, whatever businesses, and they're trying to get returns on their investment. And if they invest in a business, then the business signs documents saying, okay, we're receiving this amount of money from the LDS Church or from EPA, right? And uh, we're going to give this much back in interest. And this is how much we're going to have to repay in interest. And here's the terms of the loan and the repayment of the loan. That's how investment is done. That's how it's made all this money. So the EPA is also making investments to Beneficial Life as well as to the City Creek Mall. Now those are for-profit ventures. And this is the same as what it's been doing with other 
businesses in order to make money. That's how it's gotten so big. Now, there's two main differences. The first is, is that Beneficial Life and the City Creek Mall are for-profit ventures of the LDS Church itself, which is the one who owns the EPA in the first place, right? The second and perhaps more significant problem, Bill, is that according to the complaint and the documents in the complaint, is that this was not an investment by the EPA into Beneficial Life. This was not an investment by the EPA into the City Creek Mall. There are no documents that are known or alleged that make this secured by a note. And what I mean by that is, this is not an investment with the expectation of getting money back like it is with other investments the EPA makes. This is a gift. Yeah, and a gift not to another charity, which by the way, if you are a charity, you can certainly donate money to another charity. For In fact, Mormon Discussion has done that a several times with the Liahona Foundation, uh, with a project that Jana Reese uh, was working on, uh, as well as um, a few other things along the way. What this was, was a spending of charitable funds on a private business venture that on some level is uh, unconnected to the church and it also on some level connected to the church. Like the church is on some level a partial owner of the City Creek Mall, if I'm not mistaken. And so now we're getting into where the IRS, if they take on this this whistleblower's allegations, they're going to have to sort through and see if the church has followed all of its rules that a church as a 501c3 or a charitable organization has to follow. Churches are a little different than other 501c3. So Mormon discussion is a 501c3. It has to follow certain rules. Uh, you and I have just had conversations recently about some of this. When when a charity makes $50,000 uh, or less, I believe, in either income or expenditures, and I don't remember which, because we've been under both up until recently, um, if you make less or spend less than 50 grand, you file a certain statement at the end called a 990 form, but it's the 990N, which is just a real simple eight question thing. It's for very, very small 501c3s. Once you get over the income or expenditures of 50 grand, then you have to, you can file a 990 easy form, but in that form, you've got to show where all of this money is going. Uh, As a podcast, we can compensate the host of the programs But we can't just take that money and do whatever we want with it. There are certain rules and regulations for what we can and can't do. So the church now is a little bit of a different entity. Churches have a little bit different set of rules to follow as a charity than other charities do. But there are still rules in place for how they spend that money and where they can allocate it towards. And as you're pointing out, to take a fund that's not used for anything, to claim it is an arm of the church in some ways, and to claim it isn't an arm of the church in others, and then to use that money on uh, essentially bailing out a couple of private uh, business ventures, I I think at the very minimum is questionable, and we're going to find out how this all plays out, but there's a very good chance that there is some uh, illegality uh, to what's happened here. 
Yes, and of course, we'll have to wait for the IRS to figure out through its investigation what they think about things. I've certainly read articles and opinion pieces from uh, investment managers and experts in the field who come down on both sides of the issue, some saying the church apparently didn't do anything illegal, and that's from Forbes magazine, and then other people who are even members of the church saying, yeah, this looks like it could be a problem. So I don't know what ultimately is going to happen as a result of that, but certainly there does appear to be enough to warrant an investigation by the IRS, though they'll have to make that own determination themselves. I don't know if it's already ongoing, actually, Bill, because this complaint was filed with the IRS two months ago, and I did happen to notice that when the First Presidency issued its statement the following day on Tuesday of last week, the day after the Washington Post article was published, the First Presidency says, yeah, we'll be happy to continue to work with officials regarding these issues. So, It sounds like they're already involved with the IRS and the IRS is already involved with them. Otherwise, I don't know why they say we'll be happy to continue to work with officials regarding these issues. But that's the main issues there. There's a huge amount of money, $100 billion. None of it has been taxed, although none of it has been used for charitable purposes. The second thing is the only two disbursements that we're aware of or alleged from this account have gone to for-profit ventures for the church, the $600 billion to bail out beneficial life, and the $1.4 billion for the City Creek Mall. But it did make me think this morning, you know, how much did the City Creek Mall cost? I went back in the Wayback Machine from an October 3rd, 2006 newspaper article. But at that point, it was making the announcement, Dayline, Salt Lake City, the Mormon church, a major downtown property owner, announced a $1 billion plus one billion dollar plus project tuesday that calls for commercial residential and retail space after the destruction of many longtime landmarks at that point the estimate was that the cost for the city creek center was 1.5 billion dollars bill now that's quite a bit of money as you understand but it also sounds eerily close to the $1.4 billion that's alleged in the complaint that was used from the EPA account that went towards the City Creek Mall. So it sounds like this $1.4 billion from EPA may have gone in its entirety to fund the City Creek Mall, or possibly since the City Creek Mall was started in earnest in 2006 and the economy hit a rough patch in 2008, it is possible that the $1.4 billion was used to refinance the loan to the City Creek Mall. Or perhaps it is just a coincidence that the two amounts appear to be so close to each other in size. That is a question that further research and investigation may answer. Yeah, and it should be stated, the church has tried to be clear, look, tithing funds were not used for this particular expenditure. But again, if we just use some common sense as we we look at this story, Here's what's going on. Over the last 20 years, let's just use an approximate number. The church has approximately put into um, this EPA fund $20 billion of tithing money. That $20 billion of tithing money has been compounded year after year after year into turning into $100 billion because of the reinvestment of the interest earned on the account plus an additional billion each year put into the account. So the church can sit back and go, look, no tithing money was used for this. So long as they don't get the spending down to $20 billion. In other words, if they spend anything 
if they spend beyond the 80 billion that's in there and they get into the original 20 billion, then they would have to claim that tithing money is you so long as they're only spending the interest off the tithing, they get to stand back and say tithing funds were not used for this when in reality the interest is from the tithing money and hence without the tithing money, there is no $100 billion. And as a charity, if Mormon discussion invests $10,000 and we get $2,000 worth of interest, we can't just do whatever the hell we want with that $2,000. It has to go back into the charity and has to be continually used for charitable reasons other than legal ways in which we can compensate folks who are contributing to the material and resources of that charity. Right. But I just want to back up for just one second, because in this 2006 article, you will remember that there were a number of members of the church who were concerned that the LDS church was funding such an expensive mall, a place for commercial sales, even though it's there ostensibly and and in reality to beautify downtown Salt Lake City. There were a number of concerns that were manifested at the time, as you recall, and the response from the church was, rest assured, there is no tithing money that is being used to finance this mall. And in this 2006 article, okay, so once again, this is from KUTV. And on October 3rd, 2006, they published an article. It's titled Salt Lake City Rising, City Creek Center Announced. And in this newspaper article, they had the opportunity to interview and quote H. David Burton, who was the presiding bishop of the church at the time. So we have H. David Burton on record. Now, he's not uh, Elder Anderson out in Africa talking in ignorance about how much money the church has in this account. He is the presiding bishop. He's one of the select seven who does know about the account, who does know about the financing, who does know about how this money is being paid by the church to fund the City Creek Mall. And here's what it says in this article. Quoting presiding bishop H. David Burton, he says, We're committed to doing this project in the right way. This can set the course for Salt Lake's downtown for generations to come. The church for the last 160 years has heavily invested in Salt Lake. This is another example of that investment. And now it talks about different details regarding the mall. And here it gets down to this very important paragraph. Are you ready for this one, Bill? No tax dollars nor tithes from the 12.5 million Mormons, will be used in construction, Burton said. The church is developing the center through its commercial real estate arm, Property Reserve, Inc. Period. End of quote from the article. So this is an article where we have the presiding bishop stating that no tithes were used in constructing this $1.5 billion mall even though according to the allegation that we have the IRS whistleblowers complaint 1.4 billion approximately of the 1.5 billion was used in order to finance this mall and Bishop Burton goes even further and says the church is developing the center through its commercial real estate arm property reserve. So you see, folks, it has nothing to do with the EPA account, which is still super secret as of this point. And we're going to say it's done through the commercial real estate arm, Property Reserve, Inc. So there I see what it is that the Washington Post was talking about in its headline 
to the article it released one week ago, which is that the church misled its members. And this is what it's talking about. The church misled, apparently, if this allegation is true, and it looks like it is, the church misled its members by saying affirmatively that no tithing money was used to finance the City Creek Mall, and in fact, giving a diversionary basis by saying it was actually done through Property Reserves, Inc., when, in fact, it was tithing money that was used from the EPA account to fund this mall. And that's why I spent the time earlier on designating this as an account and a fund that was built upon the tithing from the members of the church. Now, it is possible that at the time that statement was made in 2006 by presiding Bishop Burton, that no tithing funds had been used from the EPA account toward the City Creek Mall. And so he wasn't technically lying when he made that representation in 2006. But if, in fact, those funds had not been expended at that point, when the time came that the $1.4 billion was expended for the City Creek Mall out of the EPA account, which is funded by tithing surplus, then, in my opinion, it was incumbent on the bishop and the church to come forward with that information to correct the misapprehension that they had created in the minds of the members and the public at large. And the fact that that did not happen is a problem in my book. Now, this is what the church did not want the members to know, because from their point of view, the members are concerned that tithing money is going to be used to finance this commercial venture, the mall, and therefore, they don't want the members to know that actually that's what's going on. Therefore, they're going to give this denial that that's the case from a man, the bishop, who knows that that's the case, right? And then they're going to say that's not the case, and in fact, it's being financed through a completely independent arm of the church the Property Reserve, Inc. arm of the church. Now, where you had jumped ahead to, Bill, was their fallback plan, right? Was their fallback explanation. Because what they were really thinking in their head was that if this ever comes out, well, what we're really saying is we're not actually using the tithing from the members of the church. What we're using is the interest that we made on investing the tithing from the members of the church. But when you get to that point, it's starting to sound extremely thin. Your excuse is starting to get kind of paper thin. You can actually sort of read a newspaper through this excuse. It's getting so thin at this point. And that's why they didn't want to say it to the members of the church. And in fact, they seem to have actively misled members of the church knowingly and voluntarily and intentionally misleading the members of the church about the source of the money that was used to finance the City Creek Ball. And I think, to me, that's one of the big bombshells from this story. Your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, I just, I would simply say that they're mixing two separate things. So they they are a charity that is tax-free because it's a charity, charity and it does uh, charitable things. And there are certain rules that surround a charity doing charitable things. They essentially then took advantage of tax-free charitable funds and utilized them on a for-profit venture uh, in, in the business sector. And when you mix those two kitties, the church seems to be saying like, look, it, that's our, that's our for-profit side. Those businesses are set up outside of the charity to make money. And they are completely separate entities from this 501c3 church charity thing that we do over here. But what this uh, whistleblower essentially reveals 
is that we now show that the church actually took funds out of one kitty and then and then paid for things in the other. And again, we're going to have to wait and see. But the IRS has got some things to sort through. And again, I'll only say, looking at it as an outsider, it looks a little... It uh, looks a little odd, looks a little uncomfortable, looks certainly on the verge of being unethical and maybe illegal. And it should be noted, too, there was a KUTV.com article. It says uh, this is a KUTV, uh, which, by the way, KUTV is also a, a TV station that's owned by the church. The uh, news article that they ran was, did the LDS church do anything wrong regarding claims it stockpiled $100 billion dollars? says, we sat down Tuesday with retired IRS counsel Mark Barnes. He litigated cases with the IRS for about three decades. He is also a member of the Latter-day Saint Church and served a mission in Japan. He tells us if reports thus far are accurate, then yes, the church has done something wrong here. It says here, the tax-exempt status held here comes with a responsibility. The government expects the money collected by a nonprofit to be used for charitable acts. But if that's not happening, that's the problem. You see, the problem that he's pointing to is that they took tax-exempt funds that are supposed to be used for charitable acts, and they put that money in a for-profit business sector and that becomes a deeply unethical, if not illegal, issue. Right. And so this is uh, the example of the member of the church who is saying that he thinks it might be illegal. And then there are people like the guy who wrote the article for Forbes magazine, who I don't think is a member of the church, who's saying, no, he doesn't think it was illegal. So you've got these different people weighing in. And what I understand is this, Bill. Okay, the church has a lot of lawyers. they got a lot of money. A lot of companies have a lot of money. And they also have a lot of lawyers, right? And there's always this issue of how much do we pay in taxes and what is the correct amount to pay? Well, here you're dealing with a fund where it's kind of in this gray area. There's not a lot of precedent that's been decided on other uh, similar situations because there aren't a lot of other similar situations. So what a good lawyer does, and by the way, this is not my field of practice, so this advice is worth exactly what you're paying for it. What a good lawyer does is they maximize the amount of money their client, the company, is able to keep. Okay, that's obviously their job, right? You don't want to pay any more taxes than you have to. Well, you when you get into a gray area, then the advice is generally going to be, look, here's a gray area. So why don't you keep this money and either the IRS is going to overlook it and not bring it up and it won't be a problem, or if the IRS does, well, then you're no worse off than you would have been if you had just paid the money in the first place, right? So then you get into a discussion with the IRS. You decide whether or how much money you're going to pay, if indeed you're going to pay anything. And this is where the church is heading toward with the IRS. Uh, if indeed they think there was some wrongdoing, then their people will talk with the IRS people. They'll say, okay, can we come to a compromise here of how much we should pay? Likely they will. And only in the event that they don't would they go to court in which case they would be asking a judge to actually make a decision as to whether it was legal or not. 
and whether the church should pay and how much. But in these negotiations, in these conversations, once all the facts are on the table between the IRS church and the LDS church, then the LDS church is going to be saying, well, this is a gray area and I don't think we owed that much. And, you know, maybe we did. And maybe if we went to court, the judge would see it this way. But maybe the judge would say we didn't owe anything. And so really, let's just compromise it. I don't know, 50% of what you think we owe. And then that would be paid. The case would be over. And then everybody would move on from the situation. So I wanted to bring that up just to give people an idea as to what it is that the church lawyers are advising the church and why it is the church is probably doing this and following the lawyer's advice. Did that part make any sense? Yeah, it does. And it at least brings up a tangent issue, which even if the IRS finds the church having operated illegally, um, it's not that they would have to necessarily pay a, a, a penalty or get caught up on the tax that they should have paid on that amount of the entire account, it may be just a matter of penalizing them the amount they should have paid on the things that they spent illegally. In other words, whatever that 1.4 billion for City Creek, they would have to pay a certain amount on that plus a penalty. And then whatever the other expenditure was, pay that back tax plus a penalty. And then the whole thing goes away. Um, but the other option is that the federal, the IRS determines that this entire EPA fund is outside the bounds of of what it should be used for and is completely entirely uh, operating as a charity when it really isn't. And in that case, then that entire hundred billion, I think, would have to have some type of uh, penalty charge. And again, I'm getting off into the weeds too. This isn't my expertise, but I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see how this all unfolds. Well, it certainly will. And most likely, first off, let me say that if the IRS comes down on that uh, side of things, right? And they say, hey, this whole thing is wrong. You need to pay us the entire 100 billion or the taxes plus penalties. Well, the church's point of view is going to be, no, we don't. And here's why. We pay this much here. We pay, by the way, $6 billion a year just to cover the operating expenses of the church. And according to IRS precedent and decisions that have been made, that counts as charitable contributions. So it's not like we're paying nothing. You don't just look at this account as one thing separate by itself over here. You actually look at it within the context of the entire church and and the disbursements that are being made by the church for whatever purpose, whether it's charitable purposes or purposes related to the actual operating expenses of the church. And so you can start seeing how both sides end up arguing about things. And what is most likely going to happen is that they're going to agree to some amount somewhere in the middle, and it will probably not be very public. It'll be years down the road. It's only in the unlikely event that the parties are absolutely unable to reach an agreement that it will then go to court, and then the IRS will sue the church, or vice versa, but more likely the IRS will sue the church, and then it will be litigated extensively, protractedly, for many more years until either there's a decision or somewhere during the process of litigation, the parties agree to a resolution. So maybe you and I won't even be around to see the conclusion of this whole thing. Oh, no. And that's certainly the whole point. But the question, did the, uh, did the LDS church do anything wrong in what it did? Now, that's a rather broad question. So there's two ways it can do something wrong. It can do something wrong in the sense of, did it do something illegal but the bigger question to my mind is not whether it did something illegal, it's whether it did something unethical. And I think that is the problem that the church is struggling with and trying to issue some responses to right now to try and assure its members it has not done anything unethical. It hasn't done anything morally wrong in creating this account. And 
I think that some of the things that the church has said in its public statements, its public responses this past week, as you've already noted, they end up giving responses where they don't say really what it is that they're responding to. They don't want to let the members who don't know, the ones who've been living under a rock for their entire lives, what this huge controversy is about. But they will issue sort of a response that doesn't say what the controversy is about. So hopefully it will resolve the concerns of those members who do know what the controversy is about. I think some of those have been a little bit tone deaf. And can I give you a couple of examples of that, Bill? The first is when the church issues a statement saying that it invests its surplus pennies. Okay, that's a quote from the statement. The church invests its surplus pennies. That's a hell of a lot of pennies, my friend. Yes. Uh, If you want to talk how long it takes to get $100 billion at $10,000 a day, you turn that into pennies and it's going to be a lot longer, right? So, but that strikes me as tone deaf. It strikes me as somewhat uh, possibly offensive to some people in the context of a billion dollars a year in tithing that's being invested. And I think that technically that expression was not used in an official statement by the LDS Church, but it was used in an op-ed piece that was published in the Deseret News, which appears to have had the sanction, if not the endorsement, of the LDS Church. Nevertheless, to call that surplus pennies is kind of on the order of talking about Helen Mark Kimball being married to Joseph Smith when she was months shy of her 15th birthday, right? So in the same way, you know what the facts are, if you know what the facts are, right? And we know what the facts are. You know what the facts are. You know what the church is saying about the facts. And there's such a huge gap between what the church is saying and what the facts are that it can strike somebody as potentially offensive and sort of trying to hide the ball. So surplus pennies I found problematic. The other thing I found problematic was when the church says, you know, there's been these recent allegations, but these allegations are based upon limited information. That's the quote they gave. These allegations are based upon limited information. Now, they're not going to give the details or the facts and say, here's the full information, right? But they're going to try and poo-poo the allegation by saying, hey, it's based on limited information. Well, the thing I find a problem with in that kind of defense from the church is that they are the ones who have made the information limited in the first place. The church limits the information intentionally and takes a number of steps in order to keep this information limited. And then when somebody blows the whistle on them, they poo-poo that by saying, hey, your information is limited without saying that they're the ones who limited the information in the first place. They, I find they actually that- prefer the information be more limited, mm-hmm. right? So to blame someone else with limited information, you actually wish it was more limited. Hence, hence you're really kind of, um, it's the pot uh, calling the kettle black, right? Right. Or to use a, a well-worn metaphor, this would be a classic example of pointing a finger at the whistleblower and saying, hey, your information is, uh, your complaint is based on limited information while the three fingers are pointing right back at you because you're the ones who limited the information in the first place. Yeah. So I only have one other thought, which I wanted to add, and I'll include some sound bites here, but you have the church manipulating, and maybe that's too strong of a word. You have the church adding a lot of social pressure to members of the church to pay tithing. You have the general conference talk from April 2017. Uh, It's Elder Valerie V. Cordon uh, of the 70, and he gives this talk titled The Language of the Gospel, where he teaches the members of the church that they should pay their tithing before even buying food for their children. When I was young, I worked in my father's factory during vacation. 
The first question my father always asked after I received my salary was, what are you going to do with your money? I knew the answer and responded, pay my tithing and save for my mission. After working with him for about eight years and constantly answering his same question, my father figured he had taught me about paying my tithing. What he didn't realize was that I had learned this important principle in just one weekend. Let me tell you how I learned that principle. After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day, during those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me was what we were going to eat. <laughs> Early Monday morning, some people knocked on our door. When, open it, when I opened it, they asked for my father. I called for him, and when he arrived, the visitors told him about, about an urgent sewing order they needed as quickly as possible. They told him that the order was so urgent that they would pay for it in advance. That day, I learned the principles of pain tithing and the blessings that follow. I have a I have a audio bite here from President Nelson where he says that we need to pay our tithing to avoid the great burning at the last day when the Lord comes by fire. To develop enduring faith and enduring commitment to be a full tithe payer is essential. Initially it takes faith to tithe. Then the tithe payer develops more faith to the point that tithing becomes a precious privilege. Tithing is an ancient law from God. He made a promise to his children that he would open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Not only that, tithing will keep your name enrolled among the people of God and protect you in the day of vengeance and burning. Um, we have uh, other instances throughout the church's history and specifically in the last 10 years uh, where the church, President Nelson went into Africa and told those folks that if they paid their tithing, that would be the secret to getting them out of poverty. Uh, meanwhile, those people have nothing and all logic, science, rationale points to that being an absurd uh, principle that, that the very poorest among us pay 10% of their income in order to get out of poverty is an absurd suggestion if we're just using logic, rationale, and science. And so we have these sound bites, both in text as well as in audio, where the church is telling its members, 
uh, some level of like, hey, you should feel shame and guilt if you don't pay tithing. And if you do pay tithing, then these incredible things are going to happen when in reality it is almost essentially absurd that those could happen. Um, to me, that feels manipulative, especially in light of having $100 billion or more stored away in a rainy day fund that the church essentially says we are holding on to until the second coming. And when Jesus comes back, this is going to be the money we're going to use. I want to say one last thing, which is Jesus says he's coming by fire. There is going to be mass destruction similar to when he came back in the Book of Mormon with the Nephites. If Jesus were to come back and essentially go on a rampage across the planet first before he does, the reality of what that does to financial markets and social systems may deeply um, damage or hurt what kinds of funds exist and what worth those funds really have. And hence, it really doesn't make a lot of sense if you understand the paradigm of what's supposed to happen in Jesus's second coming, of what those U.S. dollars would actually have a value of, or any other uh, nation's currency would have value of if Jesus were to actually come back. And I think all of that, it just adds and compounds the problematic nature of this money sitting aside for some future thousand year span when Jesus reigns. And lastly, if Jesus does come back and, and he really is the savior of the world and he really is uh, uh, able to do supernatural God magic, uh, I don't think there's going to be much of a need for U.S. dollars at that point anyway. You're right. And so the existence of this $100 billion fund, which is made of investments in various commodities and businesses and stocks and bonds, indicate that the people who are running this account in this $100 billion fund have no expectation that Jesus is going to be coming back anytime in the near future. Because when he comes back again, this entire fund would be decimated in its value. So on the one hand, you have President Nelson, the leader of the church, who is banging the drum like nobody I've ever heard before, that Jesus' second coming is just around the corner, and therefore we need to be faithful to the church and pay our tithing. And on the other hand, they're engaged in this investment activity, which indicates strongly that that is the last thing that they actually believe is going to be happening. So you can look at what they're saying versus what they're doing and the two don't appear to match. Let me just make a few more observations here before we close. Okay, first, uh, excellent points that you've made. And you brought up before about cleaning the bathrooms in the ward buildings, okay? Now, I think this is one of the places where the rubber hits the road for many members who have learned about the $100 billion EPA account. Because the church encourages its members to pay tithing. The church uh, believes that there are blessings associated with paying tithing and so that all people should pay tithing and they'll be blessed for it and the windows of heaven will be opened unto them and the Lord will pour you out a blessing so great that there shall not be room to receive it, okay? And the church teaches you should serve other people. And all these things, you know, certainly serving other people makes a lot of sense, I think, universally bill. But when you get to cleaning the bathrooms in the ward building, in the chapels, right? And cleaning the entire chapels. We talk about the bathrooms because that's the most menial task there. Nobody wants to clean the bathrooms, but it involves cleaning the bathrooms. If you're cleaning the bathrooms in a church building, that is service, but it is the most difficult kind of service to relate to being service to others. It is service to the church, you are doing service to the church by taking care of the building. Now, certainly you meet there on Sundays, right? But you're doing service to the church. You can't say this is service to your neighbor down the road or service to some homeless shelter. 
or to the Humane Society. This is service exclusively to the church. And when you have members who are taking time out of their schedule on Saturdays, when they already give their entire Sundays to the church and everything else that you know that members sacrifice to give to the church, when you pile on top of that cleaning the bathrooms and the ward buildings, and then you add to it, the church has $100 billion over here in this account that they don't want anybody to know about, and they've taken steps to make sure nobody knows about All of a sudden, images start coming to my mind of the taskmasters in Egypt who are there on behalf of the very, very wealthy pharaohs, but they are using whips to force the Israelites in bondage to make bricks so they can construct their monuments to themselves, right? That's what they're doing. It's it's this really, really bad optics. The second thing has to do with the missionary program. When a church has this much money, they could be doing a lot of good with it. Just with the interest, leave the $100 billion for crying out loud as an endowment. Just start using the interest for good things. That's $7 billion of interest every year. At a minimum, they should not be having children who are members of the church going to bed hungry or cold at night. Can we all agree on that, Bill? But... The church does not take steps to do that other than at a local level through fast offerings, right? But it was left to the Liahona Foundation, a separate organization created outside the church by members of the church to try and address the needs of children in the church who were hungry and malnourished and didn't have enough to eat or clothing to wear, or a roof over their heads. So we have a church with this vast amount of money that nevertheless does such a bad job of taking care of the needy within its own church, separate and apart from people outside the church, which I think is a legitimate concern too, but people within the own church, that members of the church have to start a separate organization with separate donations in order to try and meet that need. So I think that's a problem. Then you got the missionary program, right? where the church asks for two years, one and a half if you're a sister missionary, two years if you're a guy like me, two years out of the prime of your life that you're going to sacrifice for the church to preach the gospel on its behalf and try and get converts, right? In addition to that, you have to pay for the privilege of doing it. Now, the church has more than enough just out of its surplus and its interest to fully fund missions, But they don't do that. They require the missionaries to pay a substantial amount on a monthly basis in order to help fund the missions. I'm not saying it covers all the costs, but the missionaries pay $400 a month on their missions. And the church just announced in really, really bad timing in my book, Bill, really, really bad timing with this uh, news coming out in this bombshell about the EPA account. The church has announced that the $400 a month will be increasing by 25% to $500 a month starting on January 1st. In other words, every missionary for the church has to pay $400 a month toward its mission. Starting January 1st, that goes up to $500 a month. So while they're sitting on this huge pot of gold, they're increasing the amount of money that members of the church have to pay for the honor and privilege of serving the church by going out on a mission and sacrificing two of the best years of their life in order to do so. I think that's bad optics as well. And the final thing, final thing here, Bill, because we both got to go, is I was wondering, why is it that this is so bothersome to me on a on a personal level? Why is this nagging? At me, and the more I think about it, the more upset I get. And I think the the bottom line there's there's a number of different elements to it, but one of the bottom things came to me this morning, and that is that as a member of a church for over forty years, I have paid a great deal of tithing, and so have you. 
and so have all the members of the church. And it's all relative, so it's all the same amount. It's all 10%, right? It's all 10% out of our increase. And I have been doing that with the teaching that goes along with it, that everything that we've gotten is given to us from God, number one, right? And in return for that, giving us what we have, God wants 10% back as a sacrifice to him, as a gratitude to him, as an acknowledgement to him that we have gotten everything from him and he only wants 10% back. And also as an acknowledgement that we are making a sacrifice to God because we're showing him that money is not the most important thing, that God is more important than money. And we also do it with the understanding that we'll be blessed by God and that in return for that, he'll make sure that we have enough to get along. It's a two-way street, right? We give a tithing, he takes care of our needs, and he gives us the tender mercies that Elder Bednar talks about so much. So we've got this situation. That's the entire principle of tithing. Do you think I've categorized that correct so far, Bill? Okay, so now we look at this fund and we look at this fund and it seems like the leaders of the church are doing exactly the opposite of what it is that we're taught to do with tithing and what they teach us to do about tithing, which is that they are amassing great amounts of money and they are hoarding it. They are keeping it. They are not dispersing it. And they seem to be doing this out of some sort of fear that something's going to come along the pike. And this is referred to in, in the, the interview that they just released, trying to explain why it is they do this, that there's something really bad that can come along the pike and we need to have a hundred billion dollars hoarded up right? $100 billion and growing in case something terrible happens. But what they're doing by that, not only are they totally obliterating Jesus's injunction to take care of the poor and the needy and the children. Okay. That's bad enough on its own, but it seems to me that they're also showing a decided lack of faith in God and substituting their faith in God to take care of the churches and its needs. You know, the reason that we're taught that we're supposed to pay tithing, remember that God will take care of us if we do that. They're showing a decided lack of faith in God to take care of the needs of the church. And they have substituted their faith in God with faith in the United States stock market and investments and portfolios. And so they have really done a good job of making a friend of mammon to use the, um, uh, the parable of the talents, which they cite in support and justification for what it is they're doing. They're very good friends with mammon. I think they're getting a little bit far away from being friends with God and Jesus by pursuing this action. And it just seems to me that there's this huge disconnect between what they are teaching us as members of the church to pay tithing for and to trust in God for our needs and what they are actually doing themselves behind a curtain and in secret. And I don't know, maybe that plays into why it is they want to have this secret and not let the members know about it. But it certainly seems to show that whereas the principle of tithing is taught to the members as something they do to show that God is more important than money, the church, on the other hand, in the EPA account, is giving every indication that they think money is more important than God, or at least is more important than the needs of the members of their own church. And one final thing here, there has been some quotes of people who were the heads of the, um, the EPA about, well, we're saving it up for the second coming, right? You mentioned that. And you and I both know that you only have to think about that for 10 seconds max before you realize how ridiculous that is. What does God need with a starship? Well, what does Jesus need on his second coming with a $100 billion hedge fund? The answer is absolutely nothing. But what that speaks to me is the fact that even the heads of this EPA account are, are troubled, okay? They're troubled by the amassing of this money. Not, it's not just the whistleblower. Other people, including the heads, are. The president is. And that's why he's casting about to look for some kind of religious reason that would justify 
this amassing of wealth of $100 billion that's not going out for any charitable purpose. It's just sitting there and accumulating more and more wealth. And so in order to come up with some religious hook to hang this $100 billion hat on, they have to come up with this idea, as ridiculous as it might sound to you and me, well, the religious idea is, well, we're amassing it to uh, give to Jesus when he comes back again, or to take care of finances that the church is going to need to have outlays for when Jesus comes again. It doesn't make any sense, but I think they need a religious reason to back it up because it is a religious organization and they are faithful members of the church who are taking their orders from the leaders of the church, the top leaders of the church, and therefore it gets manifest this this discomfort they have with amassing all this wealth. It gets manifested in a religious reason, which makes really no sense when you think about it, but still it's a religious reason nonetheless. And that's why I think that even this sort of silly kind of religious reason that's been put out there for why it is that they're amassing all of this money ends up showing, to my mind, or at least suggesting, that they themselves are having problems dealing with this issue from a religious point of view. Yeah, beautiful closing points. Um, I, I would only lastly say uh, it also needs to be a legal argument. You need to argue why you're holding this money and having a religious reason gives you uh, some cushion. But I really appreciate the closing thoughts, RFM. Um, it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast today with you and just uh, grateful for the chance to talk about this. And um, I just really enjoyed the time spent and I hope the listeners enjoy it too. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program today, Bill. This will be a special Christmas present to listeners of Mormon Discussions and Radio Free Mormon. Yeah, you got it. It was. Uh, I hope everybody at least thinks long and hard before giving more donations or even time and energy to something that's stockpiling it while LDS kids go hungry in other countries. I, the Liahona Foundation's existence alone... Um, says that the church could be putting some of that money to better use. That's right. And so even though no members of the church will be receiving Christmas presents out of the EPA fund, at least you and I will be giving a Christmas present of sorts to listeners to this program about the EPA fund. You got it. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 